Well, you guys mostly, you guys that know me, know that I love food. I am a foodie. Uh, Sarah calls me a food Nazi or a food Gestapo, whatever you want to call it, food police. Um, I like to create the food, and then I like you to eat it the way that I want you to eat it. And uh, so, you know, if it's supposed to have sour cream on it, dang it, have sour cream on that thing, you know, that's important. Uh, But I just love food. And you go to certain restaurants or you go to certain places where you get a really, really nice meal. Maybe it's a five, seven course meal. I always say it's a really, really uppity meal if it has a palate cleanser. I'm not sure if you guys have had meals where it's had a palate cleanser, a little sorbet in the middle of your meal, so you can kind of get rid of this taste that you had previously in your mouth and set it up for the next thing. And I remember being down in Manitou, and we went to a really, really nice restaurant, and it was about a seven-course meal. And I'm like, holy cow, this is amazing. Uh, It was just one of those things where you just see it presented. You think about buffets that you've been to. Uh, A couple years ago, I went to an all-you-can-eat lobster restaurant in Orlando, and it had a lot of other uh, seafood and, and steaks out in front of me, but I was down there by myself, so I splurged, used my plasma money, got myself. I'm like, I wonder how many lobsters I can eat in a period of time sitting down. I ate nine of them. Um, but it's one thing to see the food out in front of you. <clears throat> okay, You see it. It looks amazing. It looks good. It's presented well. But what I really want, it's always better when you actually get to eat it, right? When you get to consume it, it hits the taste buds and there's an explosion of flavors in your mouth and it gets inside of you and it fills you up. And as awesome as it is to just witness it from afar, it's always, always better uh, to actually take that in. And so hold on to that thought because we're in week three of a series uh, looking at the beginning of the church Uh, We're going through the book of Acts, and if you missed the first couple of weeks, the book of Acts is written by a Greek physician named Dr. Luke. Uh, Luke uh, was a kind of like a private eye. He was kind of like an investigator. He met with people that knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw the things that Jesus said, saw the things that Jesus did. They heard his tone, and they he basically would ask them all these questions, and they would relay all this information. And Luke was very thorough, and he would write these things. Down And it covers a lot of stuff. It covers the life and teachings of Jesus. It covers uh, his death and resurrection. And then it also covers after the resurrection, the things that happened for the 40 days all the way up until Jesus ascends. And then it keeps going. It goes into the day of Pentecost, the start of the church, the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, the conversion of Saul to Paul. Uh, Saul, the guy who was adamant about persecuting Christianity, uh, putting a stop to the spread of it, has an encounter with with Jesus, and basically from that moment on uh, was very adamant about spreading the gospel. He went from one extreme to the other. And so all these things and that uh, Luke would just listen, and he would write all these accounts down into one long book, and then they divide it in half. And so the first half is the gospel according to Luke. The second half is the book of Acts. And in Luke, we discover God dwelling among them. And in Acts, we discover God dwelling in and through them. 
and that was God's desire. In John 16, 7, it says, But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Could you imagine Jesus saying that? It's best for you if I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, other Bibles, you may have the word helper, comforter, uh, maybe it's counselor, uh, maybe it's companion. All of those are words that describe the Holy Spirit. But he says, it won't come unless I go away. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And so there's this amazing gift that God is going to give to the apostles. And it is going to be instrumental in the task at hand. And so for a long time, they had witnessed it. They saw it, kind of like we see it in the buffet, the food. But now he's saying, you know what? It'd be better if I was inside of you. And so I'm going to give you this gift, and you're going to need it because there's a pretty large task at hand. And we talked about that a little bit last week. The task is the spread of Christianity, sharing the God among them story, and most importantly, the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everyone actually has the opportunity to accept that. Now, this is like 12 guys. They'd replaced Judas. There's these guys given this enormous task. I'd be like, man, that is huge. And I want to show you a map real quick. Um, the map right here. Between Judea and Bethlehem is where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. A very small space. Now, when you're walking, it seems a little bit bigger. But that's where most of his ministry was taking place. And what Jesus is saying, hey, I need you to take this to the world. Now, the world that they knew it at that time was kind of what you see right there, which is mostly the Roman Empire, which is in the orange. This is the task ahead of you. I need you to take this out, and I need you to take it to the corners of the world, and the corners of the world, according to them, was in the orange. And so that's the task, and it is so big, it's so overwhelming that God knows, hey, you're going to need some help. You're going to need a helper. And I would get excited because last time somebody needed a helper, God invented women. And I thought, man, that's awesome. What's he going to do this time? And so we're going to get some help. And it's almost like, man, if we're going to reach the far ends, then we are going to need almost like little Jesuses going everywhere and telling the story. And that's kind of what God had in mind. And so the disciples are in Jerusalem, and they have been told to wait. In Luke 24, verse 49, it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. You're going to wait until you receive the gift in the sequel, which is the book of Acts, he reminds them of this fact in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. He says, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised, as I told you before, and he's referring to Luke. And so, like the best things in life, they have to wait, waiting in a room in Jerusalem. So what do you do in the waiting? 
We all do all sorts of different things. Uh, they would spend most of their time praying. The other day when I was at a, a traffic light, and I came up and it, came up, it was red, and so I stopped. And the car pulls up to me with some young guys. I say young. I think they may be in their 20s. And one of the dudes in the passenger seat sticks his head and upper body out of the window and starts yelling at me. My window is up. And I'm like, we're waiting at the red light, and I'm getting yelled at by a 20-year-old millennial who's going to tell me probably to... No, I'm going to... And he starts doing this. I'm like, this dude wants to play rock, paper, scissors. This is awesome. So I'm like, bring it on. And we played, and I, I kicked his butt. Two out of three. I took him. That's what we were going to do in the waiting at the red light. And it was awesome and fun. And maybe that's something that is going to start spreading. So maybe when you guys pull up to red lights from now on, you just get out of the window a little bit and start yelling at the car next to you and, and start a rock, paper, scissor contest. We'll see where that goes. For the disciples, what they did in the waiting is they prayed and told Jesus stories. They prayed earnestly. And they would tell stories. Do you imagine the stories that they would tell? Do you remember that one time? Petey got out of the boat and started walking to the rabbi. And I'll never forget that. That was amazing. We also I almost lost him. That was cool. Crazy. Story after story after story of lives being changed and affected, transformation on another level. Can't you believe what he did for us? It's a major story, what Jesus Christ did for us. I can't believe that he would do those things. And it's not only us, because in Acts chapter 10, and they already know this because Jesus even mentioned it, but in Acts chapter 10, Follows Acts chapter 9, which Acts chapter 9 is huge and monumental, but in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this vision, this dream where God tells him, hey, look, it is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews. It is for the Jews and the Gentiles. And Peter, who's this front runner of things that we call the church, is like, wow, there's a lot of work to be done. If that's the case, we discovered that Jesus actually died for everybody. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says that he died for everyone. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it says, I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Gentile. Which if you're not sure what Gentile means, it just means Everybody who's not Jewish. So everybody else. This is an all-inclusive thing. The invitation goes out to everyone. And you want to talk about scandalous stuff within the church or the Jewish faith. This would have rocked them a little bit. But if we go back to this room where the disciples, the apostles are hanging out, when they're thinking in their minds, well, man, if Jesus died for everybody... We have, somebody should probably go out and tell them. Everybody else should be told about this. And here's what happens when you start seeing people the way that Jesus sees people. 
then their life becomes important to you. You start to be concerned about their well-being. You start to have compassion on them. You start to wonder, if they died right now, I wonder if they would go and spend eternity with Jesus in paradise. Or I wonder if maybe they would spend eternity completely separated from God. This place that we call hell. And there starts to become this burden that grows inside of you, a concern for souls. I've always said that this is kind of being blessed by a burden. When you're blessed with a burden that God has laid on your heart, maybe he's impressed something on your heart. And souls should be near the top of that list of the burden that we have within us. And what will eventually transpire is one of the greatest stories ever. Not just biblically, but secular history records it, all while the opposition stands ready to defeat it. They're as strong as possible. The Roman government and the Jewish leaders, they don't want to have any part of this. And they already did what they thought they needed to do to squash a faction. What did they do? They killed the head, right? So if you want to, if you want to squash something, you destroy the top. And so they thought, man, we did that. They killed Jesus and eliminating any possibilities of this thing from growing. But as you're going to find out in the pages of Acts, the resistance only led to an intensity. It intensifies the spread of the gospel, which is fascinating. And God would use the most unlikely thing to do it, the church. God's going to design this thing called the church, and he's going to use it to spread the gospel. The church, a body of believers, Christ followers who are released and sent out. If anybody asked you about the church, you should be able, you know what? We're a body of believers, and we go, we get taught, we get fired up, and we get sent out. Where do you get sent out? School work, the health club, the ball fields, the brewery, the coffee shop, wherever it may be that you go, that God is sending you out. One of the great commentators, Boyce, says this. He says, the expansion, that expansion from Jerusalem to Rome is one of the most remarkable stories in all of history, humanly speaking. Christianity had nothing going for it. It had no money. It had no proven leaders. They had killed the head. Its governing board had all run away. They had no technological tools for propaganda or for spreading the gospel, and it faced enormous obstacles. It was utterly new. It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerated world, and it was the subject of the most intense hatred, the most intense persecution, and still it took the Roman Empire by flame. And what you will see in this book is that they are going to head out. And in a span of 30 years, they're going to cover over 10,000 miles. They're going to go to 32 different countries. They're going to hit 54 different cities. They're going to cover nine islands. And 95 people will be named with titles given. 
That's quite impressive. And so they are ready to storm out. They're ready to storm the gates of hell and share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been trained by the very best. They are highly motivated, but they are told to wait because what you're going up against, it is going to take more than just your human strength. It will take something supernatural. And God promised to deliver the supernatural gift. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, it says, So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You love your kids this much and you give them amazing gifts. Buckle up because look at what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my son in you. His spirit in you. That's going to be amazing. So even though the promise of power was primarily for the apostles and there were specific gifts that were promised to those men, there's also the fact this the enabling power of the Spirit would be given to all believers. Does not mean that everyone will receive the same spiritual gifting by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Bible is very clear that it says not everybody is going to receive the exact same gift. Now the apostles were told, they were promised, you're going to get this gift and it's going to do amazing things. It does not mean that everybody is going to receive, for the rest of us, the same spiritual gifting of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to do is share with you my understanding of the Holy Spirit, which is simply from my view of Scripture, but I would encourage everybody to dig in. Dig into God's Word, read it, study it, and then believe according to what God reveals to you. And the first thing that I would share with you is that the Holy Spirit has been around since the beginning. In fact, you can't go two verses into the Bible without hearing about it. In verse 2 of Genesis, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in verse 26 of the same chapter, it talks about mankind being created in our image, referring to the Trinity. And so the Spirit of God is there. It is present from the beginning. And I want to go back to the book of John uh, 16, verse 7. But this time we're going to include verse 8. But it says, but in fact, and this is going to set up the next two points, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And we read that part. But it says, and when he comes... He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. And there's, so get this, because it's important. It got me in trouble the other day because I misspoke and Andrew called me out on it. The Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. It is a who. He comes. He will convict. You're made in our image. The Holy Spirit is a who. So when a baby is born, probably you're not going to say, you know, what should we call it? You're going to say, what should we call him? What should we call her? There's a clear gender and there is clarity that your child is a who. 
And we need to be careful that we don't blur the lines of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who is Christ in us. So if it is Christ in you, and it's actually referred to in several passages with a masculine pronoun, so this fills the idea of, ho- of hoping to have a bunch of Jesuses with us running around, but it is Christ the who in you. The other thing is the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. John 16 also tells us the Spirit will convict you. He will convict the world of its sin and the gods, of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, most of us don't need to ha- actually have to read that or even hear it to know that it's true. Because there have been times in your life, there have been times in my life where I have sinned or you have sinned, you've done something that you know goes against the very fabric, the very character of God, and you're driving home or you're walking home or you're heading back to your dorm or whatever it may look like, and you get this feeling kind of in the pit of your stomach all the way up to your heart, this guilt, this shame, this feeling, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. That is the Holy Spirit. You feel some regret, some shame, some guilt, this conviction that what you did was wrong. And I actually think there's really big danger when you stop feeling that, when you sin. So if you sin and there isn't any guilt, there isn't any shame, there isn't any feeling in the pit of your stomach going, oh my gosh, I screwed up. Because now you've gotten comfortable in your sin. You have accepted it as a part of your life. Which means that obedience to God has been replaced with you. Your wants and your desires. The other thing is the Holy Spirit can guide your life. In Romans 8.14 it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Kind of like follow the leader. You try to do your very best to follow in their ways, follow in their footsteps, do the things that they did, say the things that they say. And it's written this way for a reason, because it can guide you. But the most important part of follow the leader is actually following the leader, right? And that's where Christians oftentimes struggle. If there's action that must take place, there's a responsibility to do according to the Lord's leading. And the key component is remembering who is leading. This is where I struggle because a re- great part of my life is reflected in the fact that I like to determine my direction. I like to often set my own course and go the way that I want to go. And then what I'll do is I'll turn around and say, okay, God, Now bless it and make it easy. So I'm going to go this way, I'm going to do it this way, and here's the steps that I'm going to take, and then I pray about it, and I say, okay, God, make it easy and please bless it. And I think we're doing it backwards. Not inviting the Holy Spirit to lead out in the front, not praying it, not reading through His Word something that I'm sure all of us could actually work on. And I will say, it most likely will not be easy. A lot of times when God blesses something, it's going to be incredibly difficult. 
talked about that last week. It will not always be convenient. The Holy Spirit also teaches and it comforts. I think anytime we're reminded, reminded of God's promises, God's truth, and God's grace, there is comfort in the knowledge, comfort in the promises. John 14, 26 says, But then the Lord sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. He's going to teach you everything that you'll need to know and the things that he's told you. Ephesians 1.14 says, The Spirit of God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. One of the most comforting verses in the Bible is that God's Spirit inside of you actually guarantees you that he's done what he's done and that he's offering what he's offering and that those that choose to follow after him and have a life in him receive everything that goes to being a child of God. If that doesn't bring you some comfort, I don't know what will. As a child of God, you receive everything that goes into being a child of God. And the Holy Spirit gives you strength. You probably know these verses if you've been in the church for any, some period of time, but Philippians 4.13, for I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Acts 1.8 tells us that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit. There's power in the Spirit of God in you. There is strength in that. And here lies the struggle, because there have been times in my life where I think, okay, if I believe in God enough, if I pray hard enough, if I appeal before Him, if I believe with everything that I have, then He will answer my prayer the way that I, what? Want Him to. I've sat at the bedsides of people that are getting ready to take their last breath, and I have prayed deeply that God would heal them, that God would restore them, that God would rid them of their disease, get rid of their cancer, get rid whatever it may be. And I, I watch them as they, as they leave and go be with Jesus. And it occurs to me, it's like, Maybe their prayers were answered. I wanted them to stay. I never understood. Why does God allow some to stay and heal some and some to go where they pass away? My wife and I have said, if we're ever on a life support, <laughs> please let them unplug it because <laughs> we're so excited to go be with Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're wanting to be done with this world, but... We are ready to go be with Jesus, and I start to think, okay, man, we, we have all these prayers. We pray for God to perform miracles, and God will heal some, and he will allow others to go. But I've seen supernatural occur a few times in my life, 
where we pray and we should pray in a way that we believe that God will. But trusting him no matter what. You know, our life group was going through the Old Testament. We were talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we were talking about how amazing their attitude was, knowing that if they don't bow to the false gods, that he's going to throw them in the fiery furnace. And I love their attitude because they're like, you know what, dude? We're going to trust that our God, the God that we will bow down in worship, that he has the power to save us. But even if he does not, we trust him. And we're never going to worship another God. That is strength. That is power of God in you. And I think we confuse the power of God with the things always being done our way. Let me repeat that. I think sometimes we confuse the power of God and the Holy Spirit with things always being done our way. Because there's a name it, claim it attitude out there amongst certain churches and certain believers where it says God will heal everyone of everything every time. I know pastors that believe that. And yet the mortality rate is still 100%. So I'm like, at some point in time, your heart's going to stop. So I've always said that God can heal anyone of anything, anytime, but that is up to God. That is up to Him. And sometimes He's going to answer my prayers with a yes, and sometimes He's going to answer my prayers with a no. And sometimes when He says no to me, it's because He is saying yes to somebody else. And sometimes when he's saying no to somebody else's prayers, it's because he's saying yes to mine. But I just want to trust him as my leader and as my guide. And I want the Holy Spirit that I will trust in it no matter what. So if he leads, I follow. And the more I do that, and I am patient enough to see him through it, and you'll see incredible things. Sometimes you have to wait. And I even wonder about the church sometimes, even through my ministry, is that maybe maybe we've gotten to a place where we've processed out the Holy Spirit. Now, I struggle with that. Sermon's got to be this long, like 30 to 35 minutes, and this is how many songs we're going to sing, and we're going to be between this hour and this hour. I'm like, man, did we leave any room for the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit needs to do? Do we need to break out into prayer groups sometimes? Absolutely. Does Reuben just need to just start singing and, and you know more song? I don't know what it looks like, but maybe we should be a little less concerned with the process and a little more concerned with just tapping into the Holy Spirit. What would it look like if we did that? We really allowed God to lead out. What I want to do is I want to close with this thought because if you're like me, I want to know, okay, how am I doing on the Holy Spirit thing? 
And again, at the beginning, I told you there's a lot of different opinions and thoughts and the way people view the Holy Spirit. But in my life, especially over the last year, because I have spent a lot of time in Galatians chapter 5, I want to look at the fruit of the Spirit of God and say, how am I doing at those things? It reads this way in Galatians 5.22. This is the goal. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you're like me, you'll start reading through those. Check, check, check. Ooh, (laughs) that one, that one's hard. That one's hard right there, you know? I do good on here, 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 and here. And I like how the last one is (laughs) self-control. Got it. Love, yeah. Joy, peace, patience, I'm good. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness most of the time. Gentleness? Mm. Self-control? Yeah. How we doing? Maybe that should be the measure of how we're doing it, inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives because some of these are tough. And it's not one of those where we can pick and choose which fruit because it's fruit. You notice it doesn't say fruits. This is a collective thing. So I invite you guys to invite the Spirit into your life. Pray it daily. Make room for the Spirit in your life. Maybe eliminate the things, not maybe, eliminate the things that contradict the fruit. And allow the Spirit to lead you and activate it. This is something I've talked about for a while. There's, I don't have like necessarily a scripture in place with it, but it's just the way that I've always looked at the Holy Spirit, that it is inside of a believer, but you have to activate it. So how do we do that? And I go back to like elementary school and you dump all the baking soda and then you make a little hole and then you dump vinegar on it. and It activates it. The Holy Spirit wants to be active and alive in you. What do we need to do to activate it? Well, there's several things you can do. You can come to church and worship. You can get on your knees and pray. You can dig into God's word. You can be with the fellowship of believers. You can go out and serve. You can go on a missions trip and serve. You can go out and love your neighbors. All these things we can do to activate the Holy Spirit within us. But it is our choice that we are either going to walk in the Spirit or we are going to ignore it. It is your choice. You're either going to walk in the Spirit or you're going to ignore it. And if you walk in it, then that Holy Spirit is going to bring new life to you. And so I'm going to pray Ezekiel 36 over you. I love this passage, Um, but the Spirit is living, the church is moving, and we are invited to play our part in it. But it's important for us to understand where we are and what life we're going to live out. And so what I want you guys to do is I'm just going to pray Ezekiel 36, 25 over you. It says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. My spirit is going to be in you, and it will lead you. It will convict you. It will teach you. It will help you in comforting you. It's going to give you strength. Father God, thank you so much for the gift that you present to us, your Holy Spirit. Pray that it is not something that we take for granted, that we ignore. We actually activate it. We allow it to just fill us up, that it overflows from our lives. I pray that when we worship you, when we pray, when we even take communion, that we are led by your Spirit. That we would be a church that is led by your Spirit. Yes, we ask it in your name.